Hello all and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT news of the week. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino. I'm an editor with Gestalt IT. Joining me from across this great land of ours is the one, the only, Tom Hollingsworth. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Rich. It's a pleasure to be back after my, um, I guess you could call it a working vacation. <laughs> I mean, if by vacation you mean just working, then yes, I, I completely agree. You were you were off uh, doing events, uh, going to all of the uh, the live things, as it were. Uh, busy week, but or busy couple weeks, but good to have you back. Thanks for having me back. And I have the wrong headline up, so let's get to the right one. Big news uh, coming out this week, Tom. I know you were very excited about that. Extreme Networks announced plans to acquire the cloud-managed networking company Arrowhive Networks for about $272 million. There's some financial chicanery there, but doesn't really matter for our purposes. The deal is being positioned as adding cloud management and edge capabilities to Extreme's already impressive portfolio, while adding a subscription revenue stream as well, kind of more on the business side. Tom, you know both of these companies really well. Uh, what does this acquisition give Extreme that they didn't already offer? And does this change the market that Extreme is addressing? So I'm, I'm going to have to make sure that this is on video for everybody watching out there in TV land. I, I am going to go after this and eat a big plate of crow because I was wrong. I, I firmly believe that Arrowhive was going to be purchased by Dell. Uh, I've been calling that one for five and a half years. And that is my oldest unfulfilled prediction. And now it appears <laughs> that I will... I'll have a very lovely lunch of, of crow. Um, what does this give Extreme that they didn't already have? Um, honestly, not much. Um, the biggest acquisition point that you can get from Arrowhive is Hive Manager. Um, the uh, the APs are all reference designs. The switching is ODM switching. Um, you get some K-12 education customers. But realistically speaking, um, there's not a whole lot. And, and you want to know how bad it is. Half of Arrowhive's employees that hadn't already left we're working at Extreme anyway. Folks like Matthew Norwood and Abby Strong. Um, a lot of people are saying that there's a lot of potential here for uh, Extreme to build on some of the ML stuff that we saw at Networking Field Day 20 earlier this year. Mm-hmm. Kind of uh, turn that into uh, some pieces for the Aerohive cloud management policy uh, pieces and maybe kind of build on that. Uh, right now, it's, it looks like Aerohive is going to be a wholly owned subsidiary of, uh, of Extreme, but I mean, that's too many cooks in the kitchen for Wi-Fi. I, I have a feeling that we're going to see Arrowhive slowly put out to pasture and all of the assets and R&D that they were working on kind of moved into mainline extreme and kind of um, synergizing some of the other things. So if Microsoft buys extreme networks, will your prediction still technically be true? Will we give you credit? No, no. I'm, I'm going to let this one go and, and admit that I was wrong. Um, a lot of people were saying that they... They had that Extreme was going to buy uh, Arrowhive a few months ago. Um, I, I don't know that there was any stock in that. Honestly, uh, I've even heard some people say, well, maybe the SEC is going to take a look at it because um, Arrowhive was dumping people as fast as they could to look like a good acquisition target. Um, in my opinion, the SEC has nothing to, to base a case on because guess what? When a company's offering itself up on a silver platter to be purchased for reportedly $4.45 a share, <laughs> um, you cut costs every and you know that a company's about to get acquired when they're cutting middle management because middle management is the cushiest job you can have and when you don't have a job anymore it probably means you won't have a company anymore. yeah it uh it definitely seems you know kind of doing my research on this i'm not as familiar with these companies you know as you were and it just seemed to be like extreme's already doing this and arrowhive is maybe adding capabilities but not taking them into any new uh any new markets or anything like that so uh an interesting acquisition and i'm sorry tom that you had to let team prediction go speaking of dreams I'm that good. will never die microsoft can still be evil evidently geekwire obtained a list of prohibited and discouraged software from microsoft on that list slack is notably prohibited 
due to security concerns, although Slack Enterprise Grid is only in the discouraged category. Uh, competing cloud services like AWS and Google Docs are also discouraged and require business justification to start using them. Surprisingly, GitHub, which Microsoft owns, let's keep that in mind, uh, is also discouraged due to security concerns, specifically the cloud version. I guess the on-prem version they're fine with, but putting your source code up in the cloud, I guess Microsoft doesn't think that's a good idea, except when they can make money off it. In the, uh, is this Microsoft encouraging its employees to kind of eat their own dog food, use their own services, and make those better? Or does this feel like against the grain of new Satya Mania Microsoft town? Well, fun story time. When I was an intern at IBM back in 2001, we had a mandate from upper management in IT that we were not allowed to install anything other than Lotus Smart Suite on all of the uh, desktops and laptops that we deployed. Um, let me tell you, the crestfallen look on people's faces when we found out that they couldn't use Microsoft Word and had to use Omni Pro instead was, well, impressive. Uh, <laughs> we did find a couple of renegade copies of Microsoft Office that were floating around and being passed around as, as Office often was in that day. Um, but they had a legitimate reason because it turns out when you save things in Omni Pro format and try to send them to external customers, nobody outside of IBM uses a lot of smart suite. So we had to uh, we had to find a way to convert documents from Omni Pro to Word. Um, I think that this is a twofold thing in Microsoft's favor. One, yeah, they they want a dog food or champagne or whatever stupid metaphor you came up with <laughs> using the things that you built. Um, but look, let's look at it this way: if if they they actually use Teams internally, a lot of things that people don't like about Teams are going to get fixed. And I know that there are a lot of people out here that use Teams. Uh, some of our friends from Tech Field Day are huge believers in it over Slack. Um, uh, I, I, honestly, if they could just get the stupid thing to not use two gigabytes of RAM per channel, I think that that would be a huge win for most people. But the other thing is, is that Microsoft does have some legitimate concern, security concerns. And guess what? Google's one of them. I mean, let's be fair. If you're using Google Docs online, how much do you pay for it? If the answer is zero, you're not the customer. You're the product. So I can see that. Now, the GitHub thing is kind of interesting when you think about it, because they own GitHub. You figured they'd make it secure. But I think that this is more along the lines of some hardline traditionalists inside of Microsoft wanting to dog food, champagne dog food their own things, and still trying to press the boundaries of what we are going to let out outside the corporation. And if you ask yourself, well, this is ridiculous because Microsoft should be better than this, think about what Steve Balmer would have done. He would have just wiped everybody's PCs and forced them to use Microsoft Bob. Well, and that's what really is striking to me is not necessarily that Microsoft is doing this, but that this is the media narrative that, like, this is news, that Microsoft is forbidding using competitors. Ten years ago, this wouldn't have even been a story. Like, no one would have cared that GeekWire got this internal memo, but we have now this expectation of Microsoft as being, we're just going to use the best of what's out there, and we're going to put our stuff on everything, and for whatever reason, you know, legitimate use cases of making their own products better, security concerns, whatever you want to say, the the fact is that now that that's a story, and that's really interesting. Other thing that's really interesting to me, Tom, I've been a fan of the Raspberry Pi for some time now, pretty much ever since the first Raspberry Pi. Any kind of cheap little hacky computer, that sounds cool to me. Well, the Raspberry Pi Foundation announced the Raspberry Pi 4 is now available. It uses a faster system on a chip, uh you know, that we're, we're kind of used to, still uses quad-core 64-bit ARM V8. Now it's at 1.5 gigahertz. It's, I mean, just a marginal spec bump there. The real news uh, here is that it now supports H.265 hardware uh, video, and you can get it with up to 4 gigabytes of RAM. The previous limit was 1 gigabyte, and that was a big jump uh, from the original 256 uh, a few years ago. Memory transfer speed should improve as they move now to LPDDR4, 
And we now have gigabit Ethernet replacing Ethernet over USB 2. And you also have two USB 3 ports as part of that. I'm not sure if it's actually using uh, like a PCI lane directly to kind of get that uh, that gigabit Ethernet and to host that USB 3. But some some vastly improved I.O. there. It also switched to USB-C, uh, uh, USB-C port for power and has two micro HDMI ports that can do up to dual 4K displays at like 30 frames per second or something like that. It still starts at $35, goes up to 55 for kind of the, you know, the fancy version with four gigabytes of RAM. But Tom, does this added capability change the importance of this diminutive SOC? Well, Rich, I'm going to give you a little bit of uh, country wisdom for my dear depotted father. Um, if I were to show him this thing, he would probably look at me and say, son, I think them boys went and built themselves a brick outhouse. <laughs> <laughs> this is too they fancy? Have built- it is. This is too much. What are you, what, what? processing problem are you trying to solve that you need a $35 gigabit ethernet USB-C powered credit card computer with USB 3 ports and a quad core SOC? Like ask yourself that question. I, I don't, I don't understand why I, I, I get it. There are people who are doing amazing stuff with that. If you want to know the bat, I mean, they, the launch site for the Raspberry Pi 4 was running on a cluster of, of Pi 4s. I mean, look at the stuff that Alex Ellis is doing with um, with OpenFAS. It's great, but what are you trying to accomplish for real? What are you doing on that that you can't do on a real computer or you can't do on a distributed cloud workload or something like that? The problem is, is I think what we're going to get to really quickly is that the the bloat of hardware that you're going to get in something like a Raspberry Pi is going to quickly eclipse the fact that when these things were being built for purpose, um, you know, I, I feel like that they're, they're over-engineering the problem. Like the H.265 thing is a perfectly good example. I was brainstorming with some people when this announcement came out. I mean, these are great for digital signage. Plug them into the back of a, you know, a 65-inch 4K monitor, hang them up all over your school, create a software program to do digital signage control across all those devices, and you're set. But otherwise, why do you need 4K video in something that is this big? Well, so the idea is, though, that you can't, you know, until they have this capability, we don't know exactly what they're going to be using this for. I mean, if nothing else, this makes it a little bit more viable as a general purpose computer. And when you look at the Raspberry Pi Foundation's original mission of being around affordable, you know, kind of education use cases for this, that does add some legitimate capabilities. I mean, before, literally everything was going over that USB 2 interface. So you had Ethernet, storage, uh, any kind of external USB, all going over basically a shared 25 megabit you know, bus. Um, and that would bottleneck pretty much instantaneously. So this gives it a lot more serious IO if you, if you wanted to use it again for a, for a everyday computer. I'm not saying that's the ideal situation. I also don't know who's going to be hooking up a 4K display in that situation, but interesting use case there. The other thing though is a company, I'm thinking of a company like NetBees that uses uh, Raspberry Pis as the backbone for, you know, their client-side Wi-Fi monitoring. Having that additional bandwidth, uh, you know, because this also comes with dual band uh, uh, Wi-Fi controllers on there. Again, I'm not saying the Raspberry Pi Foundation created for NetBees, but I'm interested to see what companies like that can do with this more advanced hardware. And if you want to learn a little bit more about what NetBees is doing with Raspberry Pis, make sure you head over to techfieldday.com and check out the presentation they did at Cisco Live US. That's actually really fascinating stuff that they're working on. Yeah, and and again, uh, you know, more hardware capability, the more interesting, and to bring it in at the same price point, right? And then yeah. I'm sure what they'll do over time with this is bring some of these capabilities to maybe the Raspberry Pi Zero, their Raspberry Pi Kadoot sticks and stuff like that, spread it at different form factors, and the just the idea that adding some additional I.O. as a feature 
I think is, again, something that people have realized, you know, maybe as, hey, we're not going to get faster processors. There's limits to how much more RAM can be useful, but I.O. is I.O. and that's always you. Maybe. Yep. I don't know. You can be skeptical, Tom. You're allowed to be. All right, Tom. Something we should always be skeptical about is anytime IDC says something, but they had an interesting report out that said in Q1, uh, hyperconverged infrastructure continued to grow at a brisk pace, seeing revenue increased 46.7% on the year from Q1 2018. Dell EMC continued their market share lead among branded systems. So if you see a little logo on there, it's probably going to be a Dell EMC, with market share up to 32.2% from 28% last year, and revenue increased 4%, kind of the biggest increase in the category. Uh, the same could not be said for Nutanix, interestingly, which among branded systems remained at number two, so... I guess that's good for them. Uh, but market share fell from 20 to 14%, and revenue only grew 1.9% on the year. Uh, in comparison, you know, the industry or the, the average for the category was revenue growth of like 45, 46%, something like that. On the software side, VMware, unsurprisingly, firmly in first place with revenue and market share both increasing. Nutanix again, number two there. Hey, good to be number two in many categories. Revenue grew 31%, but it was below the overall 46% growth rate in the category, and their market share also declined as well in that space. Interestingly, IDC is going forward going to be breaking out disaggregated HCI systems, which isn't an oxymoron. Uh, so we'll be seeing companies like Datrium and NetApp uh, kind of better accounted for in future HCI breakouts like that. So I'm interested to see how that falls. But with those numbers, Tom, should you be worried here? Yes. Um, that, <laughs> next well, story. Well, here's the problem. What, yeah, next story. <laughs> that was easy. No, here, here's why Nutanix has to be worried about this. Because Dell grew and they shrank, which means the market share came from them. They, you know, It used to be that, that HCI, well, HCI is a lot like cloud is today. Sky's the limit. You can carve out your empire and make it happen. Guess what? That's not the case anymore. We've reached the, the shining sea of HCI. And the problem is, is that if Dell's going to keep growing, then somebody's going to have to feed them. And that's what it looks like with Nutanix right now. And you hit the nail on the head because Dell's growing and, e and VMware is growing and they're feeding each other. Yeah. And somebody's getting shafted by this. And, and, the, and, and this, we knew this was going to happen because HCI, like when you look at things right now, like granted, we have a lot of legacy technical debt out there. If you run a data center, you know what I'm talking about probably crying yourself to sleep at home. <laughs> but basically there's two things. You're either in the cloud and and I'm going to just lump in hybrid cloud as a thing. It's a thing. Um, you're either cloud or you're not. And if you're not, you're HCI. And so the problem is, is that that balance has struck itself. So if you're HCI, I mean, if you're buying HCI, you're really only buying it from, you're going to Dell or Nutanix came in and slipped a business card under the door. So you're, they're fighting for business. And this is going to be a, a, an extended knockdown drag out fight until Dell gives up, not going to happen, or Nutanix gives up. Well, and I think that, you know, the reason I wanted to make sure we included that uh, IDC is breaking out these disaggregated systems is that, you know, that's kind of the Gen 2 uh, or version 2 or whatever you want to call it of the HCI idea. And it's not just, hey, we can just add these appliances, they scale super easily and all that stuff. It's like, hey, maybe sometimes we need more compute, we need more storage, and it doesn't make any sense to scale those both linearly going forward. Again, not saying any of those are going to displace Dell EMC or VMware anytime soon, but that that's also an important category that Nutanix really isn't addressing. Well, let's be fair. I mean, yeah, okay, there's, a, yeah, people will buy bits and bytes of, of HCI together. They don't, they don't want to buy a sole source vendor sometimes. But realistically speaking, for IDC's purpose, you know what this is? This is basically admitting that Dell EMC and Nutanix are going to be one and two on this <laughs> right. chart for the end of time. <laughs> and the reports are going to so be interesting. This should, 
this would be like, you know, I don't know, coming up with a new cloud, um, a, a new cloud reporting structure that talks about uh, government clouds run by evil overlords that buy volcano layers, just so Oracle can be number one at something. <laughs> and that's, that's my one per show. Got you, Larry. <laughs> uh, next up, some interesting news out of AWS Reinforce, uh, micro, or Amazon's security cloud uh, focus conference. AWS rolled out a new feature allowing customers to mirror EC2 instance traffic within their Amazon virtual private cloud, allowing for direct routing to security and monitoring appliances. Previously, customers had to use agents to capture and monitor traffic from third parties. NetScout and Palo Alto Networks are among the partners announcing integrations with this new feature, kind of be ready on day one. Uh, Tom, does this natively integration or does this native integration make this monitoring dramatically easier or does this simply just cut out a middleman that organizations were already doing well it's going to make it a little bit easier because you can tee the traffic now and you don't have to get creative i mean i I can tell you i can write you chapter and verse of all the ways we had to get creative to do things like you know web monitoring and stuff like that but it's also a big boon for analytics companies because now you know i mean basically uh, amazon's giving you a native span port and so i can send traffic to an analytics box and i can send it on its way and then i can do a whole bunch of other stuff with it and, and like you said when you have to put an agent in the increase latency you increase complexity um that's not what amazon is about it's about making things easier now the downside is is that when you're not using a third-party agent you can only play nicely with the people that amazon allow you to play nicely with so if someone's trying to install their appliance or install their software and it's not like you know blessed by amazon it may not work but i mean you've got palo alto networks over and palo alto is probably with not the biggest firewall and identity vendor out there <laughs> um you know it's 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 gonna work and so i think it's more of a matter of unlearning the way you've had to do things and doing the new way and just making sure that the things you're doing are compatible. Um, This, this is going to be a good thing overall. It's going to reduce complexity. I'm a little surprised that this wasn't included already by AWS, but I I feel like every time they announce a feature, I was like, Oh, they didn't, they didn't automatically encrypt that. That's weird. Yeah. Well, this is true. You know why? Because people will pay for it. Interestingly, I didn't see um, Splunk on there, which was a company that I thought uh, would be a launch partner or something like that, but that's true. And if you're in bed with Splunk, you'll be willing to use them as a third-party agent, right? All right, and finally, uh, interesting story here. Uh, After Huawei announced it was slashing revenue expectations for 2019 by $30 billion, that's billion with a B, the market was a little rattled on how some of the component companies would be impacted, particularly Micron, which was already seeing uh, a stagnant memory market and you know Huawei made up a huge chunk of their customer base but in the company's latest earning report it crushed expectations beating revenue by a hundred million dollars and earning a one dollar and five cents per share on expectations of 79 cents Huawei had represented 13 percent of the company's revenue to date in 2019 so earnings are surprising with the trade ban in place from the U.S. Commerce Department putting Huawei on the entity list barring all trade with the with the company the company also disclosed that it began shipping a subset of products to Huawei that were not impacted by the trade ban, I'm assuming things that come from uh, overseas holdings or subsidiaries that aren't U.S. based or something like that, um, and but that they had, they are expecting DRAM and NAND products to be impacted going forward, and their guidance for the next quarter was not exactly glowing, potentially maybe easy to beat. You know, that's just my thoughts. Uh, now that the initial shock has worn off here of this, of you know the, the trade ban with Huawei, we surprised to see business as usual uh, with Huawei off the table, Tom. Surprising insofar as that people don't realize that these reports are typically six months behind. So you know what happened? Huawei literally – think about the, the last time a blizzard came through your town. What does is, what is the grocery store shelves look like? Um, it's basically <laughs> bottled water and potted meat. Um, th- this, this is what happened. Huawei knew that this was coming. I mean if they didn't, 
they're bigger idiots than anybody takes them for because you you don't this does not come out of nowhere. You know when people are unhappy with you. So they went out and they bought everything they could. Buy everything and stockpile it. And then when the ban comes, you can shrug your shoulder and go on TV and go, yeah, we're going to lose some money, but it won't kill us. You know why? We already got all the stuff we need for the next nine months. So look at what Micron did. Sold a whole bunch of stuff. Beat expectations. Why did they beat expectations? Because somebody was buying a lot more than they normally were. Look at what they're doing now. They're, they have set up lines to allow certain products to be sold that are not covered by the ban. So like you said, things that are already manufactured things that are already manufactured overseas, things that are already outside of U.S. control. But they've already lowered their guidance to the next report. Why? Because as it turns out, A, when you can't do business with a company, they can't buy stuff. But more importantly, let's just say the ban gets lifted tomorrow. Because, hey, that's likely to happen. Um, <laughs> when a company's already bought everything they're going to need from you for the next quarter, guess what they're not going to do for the next three months? Buy stuff from you. Because they don't need it anymore. Because they stockpile it in a warehouse in Shenzhen somewhere. So this this is a bigger story. But just like all economic problem, and, and I can say this because I went through economics in, in college, you don't feel the effects of a problem, a policy change, immediately. It's like the price of gas. The price of gas doesn't go up and down out of nowhere. It's the replacement cost of gasoline. So yeah, when the price of oil goes down, the price still stays high because they're making profits off it. But when the you know when when things adjust, it takes a little bit of time for all of that to play out, and that's what we're going to see with the Huawei fallout. So I, I expect by Q3, by the end of Q3, we're going to start seeing a lot more companies that are kind of having to tighten the belt because Huawei was one of their big customers, and now they're not. So do you think that will be when we hear maybe the first rumors of you know further consolidation as a as a you know direct impact of this trade ban? Yeah, I think what's going to start happening is, is the component manufacturers are feeding Huawei as as you know th- that's the one problem when you when you work with one company it's great when they're buying all your stuff and, and then you know look at that company that was going to make sapphire uh, iPhone screens for Apple and then all of a sudden they couldn't make it work and Apple's like well bye or Intel you know Intel was going to purchase a whole bunch of Apple or Apple's going to purchase a whole bunch of Intel modems and they weren't and then Apple announced today, or I'm sorry, Intel announced today that they're selling all their, their modem business. Because as it turns out, when you have one customer and they don't want to buy anything anymore or are legally barred from buying anything, your business sucks. So I expect consolidations. Honestly, I expect Huawei to start up um, facilities in China to start manufacturing these components themselves so that when, not if, but when the ban is lifted, they can say, we don't need you crumb crawling back to us so that we we prove that we could outlast you. Well, this whole strategy, because there was another story, I believe it was in the New York Times this week, that not just Micron, but Intel is starting this strategy of being able to ship a subset of products you know, to Huawei, get some, some a small percentage of those sales back. I think you're going to see, I, I mean, obviously there's an incentive for all of these companies to figure out a way to do that down the line. But as we've you know kind of learned, and to your point, Tom, of, of you know, kind of come crawling back to Huawei, I think the incentive there is if these subsidiaries you know start wanting to work in mainland China, we all know the best way to do that is to do some kind of partnership that's heavily advantageous for the domestic companies and basically renting them your uh, your IP for them to manufacture and stuff like that. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see those uh, similar type of arrangements that we're familiar seeing more from services companies with these hardware companies if this trade ban stays in place long term. All right, I think that'll just about do it for the Gestalt IT Rundown for this week. Tom, thank you so much. This was an absolute pleasure.
It was indeed. Um, I'm going to go warm up the crow, and then we'll see if we can get um, another wireless company bought by Dell later on this. Fantastic. Uh, we'll be back next Wednesday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time, streaming to you live, the IT News of the Week. For myself, for Tom Hollingsworth, for everyone here at Gestalt IT, here's wishing you and yours to have a super sparkly day.